0: Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley, and this is the podcast segment of the show that is not broadcast on station KALA. Our guest for the 465th show is Dr. Caleb Elfenbein, Associate Professor of History and Religious Studies at Grinnell College in Grinnell, Iowa, who will be talking to us about his book, Fear in Our Hearts, What Islamophobia Tells Us About America. The history boss for today's show are Rick Sweet and Brett Menard,
1: and Rick, you get to start us off. Okay, thanks, John. Caleb, I think it's a question out of, uh, I don't know if it's the introduction or somewhere in your book, but uh, the question's asked, why do many people who say they believe in equality and acceptance of those of different backgrounds also think that Muslims should be an exception to that rule? Why should they be an exception to that rule?
2: Uh, well, th- thank you for that question, Rick. I-, I mean, I don't think that they should be an exception to that rule. Um, very much to the contrary. Just making sure. And uh, you know, I, it was uh, I was I was so struck um, by uh, by what I learned uh, right around when when that poll came out, and that was actually a Grinnell Poly- College poll. Uh, we partner with Ann Seltzer of Seltzer and Company in Des Moines, and um, And when I saw that, that 90% of Americans, a little over 90% of Americans, identify treating people equally as a core element of what it means to be American. And yet, rates of anti-Muslim sentiment are really quite high in the country and remain so, and often justify support for policies that really fly in the face of the idea that we need to treat people equally, right? So, uh, for example, um, quite a bit of support for policies that limit immigration from uh, from Muslim communities uh, around the world. Quite a bit of support for removing um, really any mention of Islam from world religions curriculums in public schools. Um, a lot of support for... Um, for law enforcement, focusing on Muslim communities and uh, and and so, I just really struggle with with what seems to be this discrepancy um, between um, a general idea that treating people equally is at the the core or the heart of what it means to be American, and then in practice how people think and talk about particular groups of people
1: right. What kind of geographic patterns have you found about um, the prevalence of Islamophobia in America? Is it something where areas that have an Islamic population are more likely to feature high levels of Islamophobia, or do we find more of it in areas where there aren't many Muslims around to be afraid of?
2: Yeah, that's such a good question.
1: Um, The reality
2: is that uh, we find anti-Muslim sentiment and activity everywhere. Um, certainly, we see some differences based on um, settlement patterns. So uh, it's it's very clear that um, that in urban areas where um, there there is more likely to be significant Muslim communities, um, that the nature of anti-Muslim activity. Um, really reflects living in closer quarters. Uh, So more um, harassment, more instances of of everyday violence um, and assault. Um, In places where there aren't Muslim communities um, or where there are small Muslim communities, um, you still see some of that same kind of activity. So if there are small Muslim communities, you might see uh, mosque vandalism, um, and, and forms of everyday harassment. But what's notable is that in places where there aren't Muslim communities, um, you see anti-Muslim sentiment manifesting, anti-Muslim activity that really relates to um, the kind of specter of Muslims, the threat of Muslims. So um, the first effort to ban the application of Sharia, in American courts actually happened in Oklahoma, which doesn't have huge Muslim communities. Um, but what you do have is, um, is a community um, broadly conceived in Oklahoma um, that voted for a constitutional amendment banning Sharia. And I can only say that that's based on a, a fear of a perceived threat. And, uh, you know, that was that was happening um, right around the same time as a big controversy uh, in New York City that that really took on national proportions uh, around the Park 51 project in lower Manhattan, which was a community center um, that was uh, funded by Muslims in the United States uh, that sought to create a space devoted and dedicated to uh, national reconciliation and interfaith work and anti-muslim activists took that started calling it the ground zero mosque or the victory mosque and that became a, a, a real kind of national phenomenon and it's in that context that we saw efforts across the country um to really begin legislating things like uh you know opposition to to sharia law in the united states uh even where there weren't muslims so you see anti-Muslim sentiment and activity across the country. It does take some um, some different shape and form um, depending on settlement patterns.
0: Well, let's go back a little further. Uh, I remember when you had the Oklahoma City bombing, mm-hmm. um, and when it went down, there was this instant, I'd say, wildfire of individuals instantly assuming that it was some radical Muslim group that had carried this out and want to talk about leaderships, uh, by presidents. I can remember Bill Clinton getting on television and saying to America, look at, we don't know who did this, which means you don't know who did this. So don't you start pointing fingers. Don't you start harassing others until we find out. And then it was discovered that it was a white extremist group that did it. That, I remember this being this kind of feel across the United States going, oh, I guess it wasn't Muslims. And then when September 11th happened, it just was like a powder keg to that all over again. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, and again, is it just that that hatred is always there? It's just that when horrible tragedies happen, do we instantly kind of just that's our knee jerk reaction? Well,
2: you know, there, there was the the first World Trade Center bombing in 1993 right. was carried out right by um, by Osama bin Laden. Um, well, not not by Osama bin Laden. That that came a little bit later, um, but it was it was uh, carried out by um, by a, a small group of Muslims. So, right there is some context, but I will say associations with um, with Muslims and terrorism go back. Um, further than 1993, yeah. um, often related to um, the to movement for uh, Palestinian justice and independence in the Middle East. And uh, so, you know, there, 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 there is this connection, and again, um, I don't want to deny those connections, but rather I want to, uh, to, to point out that those connections aren't inevitable in times of crisis. It does take Um, people kind of jumping to those conclusions and moving forward based on, um, based on assumptions and stereotypes, um, in ways that can really lead us astray. And, and, you know, your point about the Oklahoma city bombing, um, having been carried out by white supremacists is really important. And it's really important to note that it took, um, from 1995 through, um, about 2018 or 19 for, um, for the federal government to devote, um, even, um, even kind of, um, significant attention to the threat of white supremacy in the United States and connection to terrorist violence. So it wasn't even right. That event in 1995 that helped create the connection. It took decades for that to happen. Whereas, right, it was, as you point out, just a kind of easy leap and jump um, to assume that someone had carried out, someone Muslim had carried out that bombing in
0: 1995. Okay. A quick question for you and Rick, because we're old enough and not to leave you out, Brett, but you weren't. So how much is this still rooted in, like, the Iran hostage deal? Because when I was a kid... And Rick was at the time he was uh, sixty eight. Uh, no, he he's not that old. But <laughs> I, I had remember uh, I had retired. Yes, exactly. But I mean, it went on for almost you know over a year. And I I can remember as a kid that the rage that happened. And of course, the Shiites are different from the Sunnis, and and Iran is is not Arab. It's Persian. So right. it, did that lay a cornerstone? And because I can still remember yesterday, and when people do this, I instantly go back to those days mentally.
2: Yeah. Yeah,
0: there's no question
2: that that there is there is a, a history of conflict especially with the United States um that involves Muslim communities uh in in the Middle East. Um and you know, I mean there's a there's a really complicated history of uh of US activity in the Middle East.
0: Yeah, we screwed them over a lot.
2: <laughs> a, a a lot, right? And and so, you know, the the hostage crisis um came uh, 25 years or so after the United States overthrew a democratically elected government yep. in Iran with and, the CIA.
0: Yes. Yes. Right. And
2: and so these, these histories are really important for us to consider um, because they, they help us make sense of, of, um, of violence that can too often without knowledge of, of those historical connections can seem, um, Like it's just based on who people are and what they believe, and you know I I think that 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 sets up the possibility of stereotyping about someone just based on who they are.
0: Rick, have you seen a great change? I mean, uh, I mean it's a lot. One factor we bring up a lot of it's nationalistic, and Mm -hmm. people instantly think that it's religious. And no, there's there's national interest as well, Rick. Because you and I have been around a long time, have you seen it changed?
1: I think so. In fact, I was going to ask Caleb this, and I'm um, just basically because we're coming up against the time limit. But the Muslim com- community in the United States, particularly during the COVID two years of horror, uh, did tremendous outreach in communities with food banks and transportation and getting uh, uh, vaccinations done to elderly and middle-aged people. And I, I think the mitigation that the uh, the outreach I think has helped. And I, I don't see, other than the hardcore racists and the hardcore, you know, Western Iowans. <laughs> Sorry, I brought them in again. Uh, uh, this is the website seems, extension. Yes. It seems to be getting better. Caleb, am I, am I deluding myself? Should I have another glass of bourbon? You know,
2: I, I've I've been thinking so much about this because you're right, rates, uh, or at least reports of anti-Muslim activity have gone down over the last couple of years. And I was starting to wonder, you know, this book that I just wrote—did I confuse something that was particular to a moment with a much larger trend? And, but you know, I, the the more the more and more I think about it, I I think it's just a matter of time, frankly, um, before um, before some of the same attitudes manifest themselves um, and. And I say that because even though I think you're absolutely right, the outreach that Muslim communities have done over the last 20 odd years, and you, you note, especially during COVID, that is making a difference. But I also want to note that in the latest Grinnell National Poll, when Americans were asked if they support um, using taxpayer funds to uh, allow students to attend religious schools, 42 percent of the American public said, yes. When asked that same question, but specifying that taxpayer funds would be used for Christian, Jewish, and Muslim schools, support among Republicans went down. Shocker. And, you know, just looking at that, I thought, wow, people would rather go without resources than to share those resources with people they don't like. (laughs) And... And, and, and that, that, to me, in addition to right continuing to see mosque vandalism and other kinds of anti-Muslim activity just at, at lower levels, um, that there is a, a kind of deep reservoir of anti-Muslim sentiment that that is not going away. And um, I, I think, unfortunately, it's a matter of time before it comes out again. I do hold out hope that continued outreach efforts and um, support from non-Muslims in the United States will make a difference, ultimately.
0: Okay. It is customary to give our guests the last word on the show. Caleb, can you in a minute uh, state why do you think knowing about Islamophobia in the U.S. is relevant in our nation and our world?
2: I think it's relevant because it tells us so much about the kind of outsized role that fear plays in our lives. And it is a a role that I think is really unsustainable because it makes it virtually impossible to share common experiences with people who are different from us. And the fact of the matter is that we live in an incredibly diverse, multi-ethnic, multi-racial and multi-religious society, and that is not changing. And if we continue to let fear really dominate decision making, we are going to, uh, to really face even more of a crisis than we're currently experiencing right now in our ability to share a common public life.
0: Okay. We would like to thank our noted guests for the 465th show, Dr. Caleb Elfenbein, Associate Professor of History and Religious Studies, who talked to us about his book Fear in Our Hearts, What Islamophobia Tells Us About America. The history buffs for today's show were Brett Menard and Rick Sweet. You can listen to ROI as it's being broadcast on Friday nights on KALA HD2 88.5 FM and 106.1 FM in the Quad City region at 9.30 p.m. You can also listen to the show as it's being broadcast on TuneIn.com. Put KALA HD2 in the search box and look for ROI. Many of our previously recorded shows can be heard at soundcloud.com. Just put KALA radio in the search. Click on the first icon and scroll down to find ROI shows. You can also find ROI on all your favorite streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcast, and Google Podcast. This is ROI recorded at station KALA St. Ambrose University.